And now, Father, as we finish our study, I thank you as well for the grace that was evident over the many months in which we took on this important study. Thank you, Father, that we were able to finish it, that it was being, that it was able to be recorded and presented to the world in a faithful way, that uh, we were able to learn so much. And we ask, Lord, that tonight you bring it to a conclusion, not just in the fact that we end the narrative, but to a concluding message and purpose in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 27 and 28, we're going to come to the end here yet again of another verse-by-verse ministry study. And similarly, Paul's journey is coming to an end here. He reaches Rome tonight. So remember from last two weeks or so, we had Paul on trial, first Felix, then Festus, then from there, Paul felt the need to appeal to Caesar, which was every Roman's right, and that took him to the place where now he reaches Rome. The charges that were against him under the trials of both Felix and Festus were were no charges at all. There was no evidence. There was no real crime uh, suggested. At one point, Festus had so little to go on that he enlisted the help of his friend King Agrippa, his new friend King Agrippa, hoping that there'd be something drummed up in that kangaroo court. But yet again, nothing was found to accuse Paul. So now Paul waits in the palace in Caesarea and the time has come for him to head to Rome. In the last chapters of the book, 27, 28 tonight, Paul begins his trip to Italy. Along the way, he's going to encounter storms. He's going to encounter a shipwreck. He's going to have a snake bite. He's going to perform healings. He's going to comfort many of the brethren along the way in numerous places. And at the end of it all, he just ends up doing what he's always done. He preaches to the Jew first in Rome and then to the Gentile in his common pattern. And there's even a bit of a surprise ending to the book. Luke, we see mentioning not only Paul, but also himself. And therefore, we know Luke accompanies Paul in these travels. He records all that happens. And his record at this point in the book of chapters 27 and 28 is a bit of a highlight for the entire narrative of Acts. It reads with some very interesting similarities to the book of Jonah, so much so that it would seem as though that's intentional on Luke's part to draw out parallels to Jonah's. You're going to see things, for example, of God moving a prophet to preach repentance and salvation to Gentiles instead of to Israel. So we're going to look at that a little bit tonight. So let's begin in chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would set sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramitian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia... We put out to sea accompanied by Aristocharchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and he put us aboard it. And when we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Sinaitis, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasea. As Paul sets sail here for Italy, we we begin what is effectively his fourth missionary journey. Remember the maps I gave you all at one point? This is another great opportunity to pull the maps out and reference them as we go through tonight because the name places pop up on that map that I handed out and make following the narrative a lot easier because you can 
trace it as you see the words coming across in the narrative. Now, you might not have thought of this initially as a missionary trip, given that Paul makes his journey under guard. But just that thought reminds us that God uses all circumstances for good purpose. His ministry here is going on while he's a prisoner. This trip is orchestrated by God so that Paul can minister in Rome. And like we've said multiple times, the manner of his transfer is not the point. I'm fond of saying that ministry happens while you're busy planning for your next mission trip. And that's exactly what's going on here with Paul. His life is about ministry. It doesn't matter how he's moving. When the time comes for him to set sail for Italy, Paul here is combined with other prisoners who are also being taken to Rome. These men might have included some others who had appealed to Caesar like Paul did, but it's more likely these are men destined to fight and die in the Colosseum for sport and amusement. This whole group now of prisoners is being guarded by a cohort or squad of soldiers who are stationed in Caesarea. So their job in Caesarea, among other things, was to escort prisoner ships back to Rome. Remember, the Colosseum was a popular event. The fights, the beasts, the gladiators, they needed a steady stream of prisoners. So part of how they got those prisoners was a very regular routine of ships bringing prisoners into Rome from around the Roman Empire. So looking at the map of the fourth missionary journey, you can follow this description. It starts as they board a ship that meets them in Caesarea. The ship itself was named for a region near the the city of Troas, somewhere that Paul has been before, as you may remember. That ship's home port would have been in Myra, which is in the region here. So that ship is away from home. It's at a foreign port. And you need to think of this ship a little bit like a bus. It's a small ship. Luke says it's scheduled to sail along the coast of Asia. That fact tells us it's a small ship doing the the taxi run. Stops at every small port, exchanges cargo in each one. And because it's a small ship, it doesn't venture deep out into the Mediterranean Sea. It's too small to get out on the high seas. It stays inland where it's going to be safer. So this ship is not meant to get them to Italy. This is only the first ship. They're going to transfer at some point from this ship to a bigger one. This just happens to be the first one leaving Caesarea, perhaps. First, they go up the Phoenician coast to Sidon. While there, we're told the centurion of the cohort, Julius, treats Paul with grace and allows him to visit a church in that town during the layover. That's a right given to Paul probably because he's a Roman citizen compared to the other prisoners who more likely weren't. And they weren't going to be let out of anybody's sight. The fact that Luke is along for the travel here, was probably also a concession for Paul's sake as a result of him being a Roman citizen. Having the benefit of a traveling companion, an aide or a nurse or a doctor in this case. After Sidon, they sail around the eastern side of Cyprus. Your map would show that. They do that, we're told, because they're using the larger island as a barrier for the prevailing winds, which were contrary to their direction of travel. So they're going against the wind, so they tack They take a direction that is somewhat perpendicular to the wind and they tack. And then they use the island of Cyprus as a barrier so that the winds aren't as strong along the side they're able to go. Eventually they reach Myra, which was the home port for the small vessel. So that's the end of the line for this ship. They have to get off and find a new ship. They find a grain ship headed for Italy. It's Alexandria, meaning its home port is in Egypt. Egypt was a major supplier of grain in the Roman Empire. In fact, ancient records show that there was a large fleet of ships that routinely made these grain runs. The Roman Empire was was huge. It had millions and millions of residents and they wanted bread just like the rest of like we do today. And the grain for most of that 
was grown in places like Egypt and then moved in great quantities by these ships on a regular basis. Here's a ship from Alexandria that is stopped up on the Asian shore and is headed toward Rome. These ships, to give you an idea of the size, they were 180 feet long, they were 50 feet wide, and they had a 44-foot deep hold. By comparison, that's more than twice the size of the largest ship that Columbus used when he crossed the Atlantic and searched for the New World. This is roughly 1,500 years earlier, and ships that are more than twice that size sailing with huge holds full of grain on a regular basis to Rome. I think the more you study ancient Rome and the more you study the life and the commerce of that time, the more and more sophisticated they become and the less you seem to think we've advanced. Now, that direct route would have taken them across the Med from where this ship docked. If you go all the way across to Rome, it would have been more or less a straight shot across the Mediterranean, just south of Greece. But as the text says, the winds were blowing against them. A direct shot was not going to be possible. Here's where the story starts to sound a little bit like the story of Jonah. In the story, there's a ship that leaves Joppa with Jonah aboard. And as Jonah goes out in the ship against God's direction, the ship gets caught in a storm because of Jonah's disobedience to God's instruction. The men try to return to the land to save themselves and to save Jonah. But the wind blows so hard against them, they cannot reach the shore. It's as if God wants the ship to stay out in the water. Clearly, in the story of Jonah, God was preventing the men from returning to the land because he intended Jonah to spend some quality time in the fish. If that was going to happen, he needed to put them out there for a period of time. But the men on the ship, back in the story of Jonah, were not immediately aware of God's working in those circumstances. They just saw it as natural circumstances and they were disappointed over their bad luck. Only later did the sailors find out from Jonah himself that the storm was a direct result of God's hand in response to Jonah's disobedience. They put the two and two together only later. And they also find out that the intended audience for all of this was one man, was Jonah. Well, likewise, when Luke's account fully develops here, it's going to seem to draw our attention to God's silent work in detouring Paul's ship. Remember, who put Paul on this road to Rome? The Holy Spirit. And yet, now that the trip is underway, it seems as though God is doing everything he can to divert this ship from its straight and narrow course to Rome. At first, this ship of 200 plus passengers are unaware of God's work in that regard. They just take it as bad luck, nature, whatever. And they also don't understand Paul's importance to God and that he's really the focus of this trip. This whole trip is to get Paul to Rome, but they don't know that at first. So there's some parallels there to Jonah's story. The captain now does the only thing captains can do at this point. He sails in another direction, again, hoping to avoid the weather. The route that this ship takes is southwest toward the island of Crete, again, hoping to use that island now as a shelter. First it was Cyprus, now it's Crete. By the way, as an aside, you can see how sophisticated sailing was in those days. You have mariners now navigating very large vessels in open waters, steering them to known points of land that are relatively small and doing it with great skill and with great confidence they can reach these points. This is not the Flintstones. This is a very sophisticated and, dare I say, modern society living within the constraints of technology in that day, but not without the ability to do many of the things we take for granted today. Eventually, they land in Fair Havens on the southern side of the island. The ship is here now, we're told, to wait out the weather. Look at verse 9. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, 
Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spending the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. Well, unfortunately, the captain makes a mistake here of waiting too long to leave Fair Havens. Because in verse 9, we're told the voyage now has become dangerous because the fast is already over. In the autumn period of the year, the autumn and winter period of the year, there were very strong and unpredictable storms common over the Mediterranean Sea. So sailors had learned that you don't sail the open waters during late fall and winter months. You just docked and you spent the winter in the dock. That was the safest thing to do. It was generally considered risky to go out after mid-September, and it was crazy to go out after mid-November. So there would be a, a small window maybe near the end of the autumn where you might venture out, but again, you're taking a great risk. Any journey after mid-November was assuredly going to end badly because you were going to encounter somewhere in that distance you had to travel. Somewhere along there was going to be a storm come along because they were so frequent and so regular. The reference here to the fast is to the Jewish observance of Yom Kippur. So the Day of Atonement was a day of fast. It always occurs in mid-autumn. It's traditionally called the fast by Jews. In the year that these events took place, it was October 5th. So that would mean this is now well past October 5th, probably mid-October at the very earliest, maybe later even, which makes it a very risky time to put any kind of ship out into the Mediterranean, even for a short period of time. If the ship doesn't sail, then it would be stuck in this particular location for the duration of the winter, and then they'd set sail again in the spring. But the captain of the ship here knows he's going to have to winter somewhere. He might as well make the best of it. And for some reason, Fair Havens, despite its name, doesn't appear to be a very nice place to spend the winter. Much better down the road a little ways, if they can get to Phoenix, there's a much better place for them to stay the winter. So they decide they're going to push off and move. Now, notice on your map again, it's a very short distance. Crete's not very big to begin with. They already plan to stay close inshore. They're not really going out into the open waters very far. Seems like a pretty safe measure, even at this time of year. Paul says, bad idea. He warns the centurion, don't go. If you go, you're going to regret it. You're going to face serious problems. We all will. The trip will result in loss of cargo and loss of lives. That's Paul's warning. Now, he specifically says cargo would be lost, people would be injured, and even lives would be lost. But in reality, all these things occurred except there was no loss of life as the story plays out. That difference is important because what it tells us is Paul was not speaking here on the basis of divine revelation. Paul was instead simply speaking as an experienced traveler who had had his fair share of sea travel and was doing his best to reverse a dumb decision on the part of the captain. Based on Paul's earlier writing in his second letter to Corinth, we know that he has already experienced shipwreck three times prior to this one, to this ship going under. And so he speaks with experience. And that's the basis for his, for his warning. Sound judgment, uh, good advice, not necessarily divinely inspired, but nevertheless, still good. Unfortunately, the centurion trusts the word of the pilot and the captain more than he does this prisoner. And therefore, now Paul's going to have to endure his fourth shipwreck because of that. 
the majority were told vote to move on to a better harbor. No one is foolish enough to set sail across the entire sea, so they're only wanting to go that short distance. Keep in mind, Paul is going to reach Rome. Paul knows he's going to reach Rome. He's been assured by the Spirit that he's going to be in Rome. And he has cooperated with the Romans this entire time because he knows why he's going to Rome and that he must go to Rome. So there is a tension that Luke here very nicely is building in the narrative. You have the inevitability of reaching Rome with also this foreboding of Paul himself saying, we're going to have trouble if we set out, yet they do set out. To the reader, the question then becomes, well, I know he's going to get there somehow, but I wonder how it's going to all work out. It creates a sense of tension and an anticipation of what happens next in the story. Yeah, Luke does this very well. Why is the Lord making this trip so difficult? In the knowledge that all of these details are his, he controls everything, there's nothing outside his control. We all know he wants Paul in Rome. So why is he creating such tension within the narrative of getting Paul to Rome? Look at verse 14. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called the Arachilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. And after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Luke gives just a fascinating amount of detail here, valuable detail on the ship's movements and on how the sailors reacted and how they maneuvered and managed the ship. One writer said that his account is the most detailed, most authoritative account in classic literature of how ancient ships were sailed under these circumstances. This is the best account we have in ancient literature of how people sailed. And not just in this passage, but all through this chapter. Tonight, I'm not going to drive into all of these things and what they mean for sailors necessarily. That's probably beyond what we need to do. But I want to highlight a couple of pertinent details. First, the wind that they encountered here and, and this name that, that Luke quotes, the uh, Erechilo. Today, that word translated most literally today would be nor'easter. So a strong northeasterly wind rushing down from the land of Crete. The wind, we're told in my English version, was violent, but the Greek word for violent is a word from which we get the word typhoon. So it's typhoon-like, a hurricane-like gale, in other words, with a strong northwesterly or northeasterly origin. So it's coming in, pushing from that direction, just very violent, swirling, preventing you from controlling any ship in that water. That's the nature of this wind. Funny how that just came out of nowhere. The ship gets out of the port. They're barely anywhere along. They're, they're within sight of land the whole time. And next thing you know, they're in a swirling, violent wind and they can't get anywhere near the water or control the ship. Funny how that worked out. They can't possibly land in Phoenix now. They're not going to be spending the winter there, it's obvious. Luke mentions a couple other details. He talks about the ship's boat. What he's referring to there is a lifeboat. But the way lifeboats were used in those days, they were towed behind the larger boat. So if you imagine originally it was out behind. Well, when you're in a storm and you're worried about sinking, the thing you're worried the most about is losing your life raft. So they, with great difficulty, he says, they bring it up onto the ship for safekeeping and tie it down. Then it says they feared running aground in the shallow water 
near Sirtis. That's a part of North Africa on our map that I gave you. It's marked Sirtis. It's a place where the water is relatively shallow. There's a very long shelf that stretches out many miles into the Mediterranean. And a deep, heavy ship like this one is going to run the risk of running aground if the wind, remember, is driving from the northeast, pushing it down south. That shows you how much they worry about this wind. They're worried about being pushed hundreds of miles by this wind. And so now they drop anchor and let it drag as they get blown in a way to slow themselves down a little bit and hopefully not get dragged into that area. Then over the next two days, they do whatever they can to keep afloat. First, they throw over the cargo. And then secondly, the tackle. Now, tackle in this context means the furniture of the ship. Everything you could sit on, eat on, sleep on, anything that had any weight that was movable. And we, it says with their own hands. So they're literally just ripping things off the boat and throwing it overboard. Anything they can to keep the boat afloat. This is also, by the way, reminiscent of the story of Jonah. Not just the fact that the ship is in a storm, of course, but of what the sailors did in the time of the storm. In some respects, I don't think that's a remarkable thing to note. I'm sure all sailors resort to this kind of a response when in a desperate situation, right? Throw whatever you have overboard seems to be the solution to every problem when you get into trouble. But the fact that the trip has come to this and to this parallel situation, I think is important in drawing a connection. The men on board here have reached their limit. They've reached that point where they have done everything they can imagine in facing their own circumstances. And then we're told because days have passed, they haven't seen the sun or the stars, meaning day or night, they can't see anything but clouds and storm. That not only tells us about the significance of the storm, the length of time, but it means they can't navigate. It means they have no reference points. They don't know where they are. They don't know how to get to where they want to be. They're, they're totally lost. And as a result, they lose hope. There's a parallel to the story of Jonah. The men losing all hope on board. It only seems a matter of time before they die. Verse 21 now. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in the midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Well, thanks for the pep talk, Paul. But that's not his point. He says, Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night... An angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that I will turn, I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. But when the 14th 14th night came as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. The intensity here has been so great that no one's eaten for days. And you, you know what that's like, of course. I think if you've tried to fast for even a day, much less a couple of days, you realize how weak you get, how quickly you get weak. Paul, at this moment, steps in, and he's trying to accomplish two things in what he does here. First, he, he is trying to teach the men a lesson that they need to trust him and his word. He's not reminding them of what he said before to make them feel badly, of course. He's doing it so that they might trust him in the future. They remember. He knew what he was talking about. Secondly, he does have encouraging news to share with the men based on what the angel had brought to him, this revelation that they are going to live. Paul has to live. He has to stand before Caesar, we're told. So it is inevitable Paul will make it to Rome. 
And therefore, he's told, those who will accompany Paul will make it to Rome. Notice God has granted, in a very specific sense here, the saving of these men. He says he will save the lives of all these men, provided they all sail with Paul. So God has put a condition of sorts on this promise that there will be a delivery of the men, but he is offering a deliverance to the whole, to the group, not on some individual basis. One writer noted that Paul here is the only man with courage remaining among those on the ship at this moment, but it comes because he has this knowledge of and a trust of the God who controlled the seas. What was lacking in courage among the other men was a direct result of them not knowing the Lord and not appreciating his power to deal with these circumstances. And by his courage, by the way, Paul has effectively become the captain. This monologue is also similar to Jonah. Think about it. When Jonah gives his explanation to the mystified crew for the storm and then he connects all the dots for them and they understand, oh, you're the cause and you're the reason God's doing this and so on. Luke seems to be crafting his narrative to follow that same pattern here because now Paul predicts this is what's going to happen to the ship. I know God. I know the God who's responsible and he's told us we'll all be safe. You can trust my word. He has allowed Paul now to emerge as God's spokesman in the midst of this circumstance to a group of men who before this would have cared very little for what Paul said. So they are now a full two weeks into the storm. Can we doubt this is supernatural? I have to imagine a two-week non-stop gale of this magnitude is not typical. And as a result, it's clearly got at work towards some end. The men now at some point sense land is near. I've read that people who sail a lot and spend a lot of time on the open sea can detect the smell of land from quite a distance because there's virtually no odor at sea. There's no odor from the surrounding environment. So when you get near land, there's odors that come off the land that are distinctive and they catch your attention. Perhaps that's how they knew here at night that they were approaching land. Because it's night, they worry about approaching land. So they start taking depth soundings, readings, by dropping a weight that's tied to a rope that has a mark of how many fathoms. So as the rope sinks with the weight, when it hits the seabed, they can stop and read from the, from the rope how far down it went. And they take a sounding, throw it overboard, read the rope, 20 fathoms, pull it back up. A few minutes later, throw it overboard, reads 15 fathoms. Uh-oh, now we're moving up a shelf very quickly. And it's not going to be long before the bottom of our ship hits something that we don't want to hit. So they drop all the anchors they have and try to hold themselves at present position until daybreak. Because once they can see, then they'll have a better understanding of how to guide the ship safely into whatever harbor or bay might be there. Verse 30. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Are they trusting Paul's word now? Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. For not a hair from your head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged. They themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten together, when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. There's a similarity here in Jonah again in the way that at the point men on the boat of Jonah recognized who God truly was. And they recognized his power through the way he stopped the storm 
after Jonah was thrown overboard. The next thing we hear that the men on the ship do is they have a moment of thanks and worship to God and sacrifice to God, a similar moment to the one Paul is presenting here. Again, a parallel of sorts in which once God is fully revealed, his power is shown and there is a salvation implied for these men. Then they give thanks and they have this bread-breaking moment through Paul, similar to the way the men on the ship in Jonah's day did. So in the midst of lowering the anchors, they smell the land or they sense the land. They have these other men who decide, you know, we're close enough, let's make a break for it. And they look like they're lowering anchors, but they're really working on getting that little boat out of the, out of the larger boat so they can escape. Paul, I assume because he's been on enough ships to know the difference between letting down an anchor and letting down a, a lifeboat, says to the centurion, those guys aren't planning anything good, and if they leave, you're dead. You get, you get no guarantee from God. So the centurion and the soldiers do the only thing they can do at that point, the only thing they should do, cut the lifeboat free. Now we're all stuck. Nobody's leaving. Why is Paul working to save this man's life? Paul's life isn't in jeopardy if these guys get on the boat and leave. It's just the centurion's life and others on the ship with him, perhaps. He could have let him go. Paul would have still made it to Rome. But then he knew that God intended to save all of them, as the angel had said earlier. And he could have assumed God might have just been keeping that promise some way and not necessarily through what Paul said, and he didn't have to intervene. But it seems instead that Paul understood that he was called to be the means by which God would accomplish this work. In other words, we understand God's sovereignty and his intent, but we also understand God prefers or desires to work through men. If you outthink yourself and go into that circular logic of saying, well, because he can do it and will do it, he doesn't need me to do it. I can't really change it anyway. Do I really matter? Do I need to be involved? Well, you need to just break that circle up and just get out of that whole mindset and go back to work. And what God will do through that is accomplish the very things he said. What Paul, I think, was, must have seen in the moment was, this is not supposed to happen. This is against what God said would happen. I have the means and the ability and the opportunity to put an end to it, and in doing so, support the word God has given us and, and see it come, come about. I don't think Paul would have said he was the only way it could happen. I think Paul just made the obvious conclusion he was supposed to support the program God has put in front of him. And he did. Maybe that's the easiest thing for us to remember. It's just support the program God's put in front of us and don't worry about whether or not he needs you. We obey without worrying about how God works it out. There's still yet one more parallel here to the story of Jonah. When Jonah reaches Nineveh in the story of Jonah, his declaration of God's message, the gospel effectively, the message of repentance, it reaches the entire city, if you remember, and results in the entire city of Nineveh being saved. Just like the ship's passengers here, it was an all or nothing commissioning from God. Either Jonah was going to preach and they would all be saved, or Jonah wasn't going to preach and none would be saved. But God had said, you will preach and they will be saved. There wasn't going to be any question to that outcome. God intended to save the city and so it must happen. Well, then Paul brings them encouragement, tells them to eat. It's going to be a while without food. You've already been a while without food. Let's have this food and encourage each other through it. And then they start leaving putting the wheat out. Why do you think they started dumping the wheat at this point? After all, it seems like they're coming to the end of this, not needing to. Well, the answer is because they know they're about to try to run this ship up to land. This is not a small ship. This is a big, big boat. You don't get this thing close to the beach unless it's very light. If it has a deep draw, it's going to get stuck way out at sea. You don't got a lifeboat. Now you've got a whole ship full of people still a long way from the beach and in deep water initially because that ship's going to run aground while you're still in 20 or 30 feet of water. And they're going to have to reach the beach. But if I lighten that ship, I get it a little closer before it 
it hits the ground, I have that much less distance to have to swim to shore. And remember, in that day and age, a lot of people didn't know how to swim. So a lot of these guys were going to be in dangerous situation trying to make it the rest of the way without a lifeboat. So they start throwing out the wheat. Verse 39. When the day came, they could not recognize the land. But they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, and they were headed, heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard and should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks, others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. So daylight reveals an island, but they don't know where they are. They don't understand the land. They've not seen it. These are men who are familiar with the Med. They sail it a lot, and yet they've never been here before. The bay is part of the island of Malta, just south of Italy on your map. Today that bay is sometimes called St. Paul's Bay because of this experience. Ocean currents meet in this place in the Med. East-west currents meet. Whenever you have the confluence of two waters, that's usually a place where you have rich nutrients in the water. Rich nutrients feed Sea life, coral, and other animals will be attracted to the coral, so you end up with a, a very robust aquatic life in that place. Well, in this case, it, it led to a reef being far out away from the land where they wouldn't have expected one, and that stopped the ship far from the beach in that position I talked about a moment ago. Now they're in trouble, way away from where they want to be. As they get hung up on the reef and the ship's breaking apart, they've got to make quick decisions. They're not going to be able to stay on this boat much longer. And the prisoners now are the first concern because in Roman law, anyone who was guarding a prisoner and their prisoner escaped, they would die. The penalty for losing your prisoner was death. And not just for one, but for the whole cohort. So if, if there was one prisoner gone, the entire cohort would be held responsible for it. So they all say there's only one solution to this problem. We kill them before they kill us, so to speak. The centurion now has taken a particular interest in Paul and has decided Paul needs to stay alive. And so he tells the men, you're not going to take this action. And in doing so, the centurion essentially takes the authority on himself alone so that if anyone does escape, now it's his life alone. He's, he's taken that responsibility away from the other men. He's taken a great risk here for Paul's sake. And it shows you how, much, how important he thinks Paul has become. We don't have any indication that the centurion actually came to faith, but there is a question in that regard. Could this have been a sign of faith or in some way an indication of what he felt about what Paul taught? We don't know. He says, swim if you can, float if you can't. And miraculously, they all make it, as God promised. They land on Malta, and then they regroup. Verse 2 of chapter 28. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time, 
and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. The men here are received by natives. The word native here in Greek is the same word as barbarian. And in Greek parlance, a barbarian is someone who does not speak the Greek language. So the division between the civilized and the uncivilized for this day and age was between those who had been influenced by the Hellenistic movement and the the Hellenistic expansion and the language of Greek that came with it versus those who had been untouched by that. And so these are non-Hellenistic, non-Greek speaking uh, men or people. And as a result, they're considered uh, barbarians or natives. As such, we can also assume there would have been some difficulty in them communicating with Paul that there would have been hand signs and, and very crude methods of communication. It's unlikely that anyone really spoke each other's language as, as we would expect at this point. But they all understand basic things like it's cold, we need fire, we need heat, and so they develop a rapport around just setting up a camp and setting up a campfire. Paul, like everyone else, would have been out collecting firewood. In the cold, snakes don't move very much. They lay still. They look a lot like wood in some cases. And Paul probably grabs a bundle of of things off the ground and collects a snake amongst them and doesn't know that he's picked one up. It slowly wakes up, especially when it gets hot. And as the heat of the fire wakes it up, it does what snakes will do. It comes to life and it's, and it's, it's, it's frightened for its life. It attacks and it sticks in his hand. This would indicate a, a, a venomous snake because it has fangs. So we know it's a deadly snake and it's called a viper, but that's a generic term for a deadly snake. Uh, it hangs on his hand like snakes sometimes can do if the fangs get stuck in your body. So here's the scene, Paul with a snake on his hand, and everybody assuming that's the worst thing for Paul, so much for Paul. And eventually he tosses it into the fire. It's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? Here you have God, God's messenger, God's servant, Paul, and you have the snake, the serpent, attacking God's messenger. And what is the fate of the snake? In the fire. While the one who is God's messenger is unharmed by that. It's an interesting metaphor for how God's church and his people will work in the world in the face of attacks by Satan. That there is, a, there is an eternal protection of sorts, not necessarily in all cases a bodily protection. But in this case, there was a bodily protection. And the natives witnessed this whole experience back and forth, the, the snake bite and then Paul's failure to get sick or have any bad uh, consequences. And they come to a very common assumption. It's an assumption that unbelievers have every day of their life, even today, And unfortunately, many believers carry this same false assumption. This is the assumption. Bad things happen to bad people. There's a corollary, of course. Good things happen to good people. And there's a quandary. What happens when bad things happen to good people? The quandary is because we assume that first rule is true. And so then we try to make sense of of the quandary. While there is truth that bad behavior leads to bad outcomes... We call it sin having consequences. The natives have incorrectly assumed that the reverse of that is also true, that bad outcomes are unique to bad people. It is true that bad behavior leads to bad outcomes, but bad outcomes are not uniquely reserved for bad people. That's the assumption they're making here. And so they see this outcome as proof that Paul is bad. They jump to the conclusion that he's a murderer because he's about to lose his life. It would seem to argue that he may have been guilty of taking someone else's. That's how the logic works. If he had uh, had something stolen from him, they may have argued, oh, that shows that he was a thief. That's the logic behind this. But in reality, bad things happen to everyone. But God promises to turn them to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In this case, then, Paul's bite being a bad thing in some sense 
becomes God's opportunity to glorify his name among these people through Paul and through the protection that he affords Paul, just as he promised that he would do to the apostles back in Mark 16:18. Paul doesn't seem phased by this event. In, in the way Luke carries off the narrative, I almost get the impression that for Paul, he never even stopped to consider the snake bite. Like you might brush off a mosquito, he brushed off the snake and went back to work. That tells us and tells me that Paul understood Mark 16:18 in its context, that there was a fulfillment waiting for that promise, and he may have been the fulfillment. Not just a fulfillment, but the fulfillment of Mark 16:18, that a disciple could experience these kinds of things and not be hurt by them. Remember, that promise, as was spoken by Christ, was not given to all believers. It was given as an example of how the Lord's work in the body of Christ will manifest for some believers. Among believers today, there will be those who will die martyrs, those who will die rich, those who will have a chance to teach, those who will have a chance to testify, those who will have a chance to be missionaries. We don't hear that and say to ourselves, I'm going to do all those things. No, we say to ourselves, I see the breadth of what God is prepared to do within his church. Similarly, in Mark 16:18, it's a statement speaking to the breadth of what would happen within the church because of the work of the Spirit in the body of Christ. Some will have this unique experience in which a deadly serpent will not harm them. But precious few, and I certainly wouldn't go testing to find out if you're one of them. That's not smart use of Scripture. In Paul's case, he was, I believe, the specific fulfillment of that promise. The natives are astounded, we're told, by Paul's resilience. They call him a god. That reminds us of what happened when him and Barnabas rolled into town, if you remember. You know, what these natives proved by the response is that the signs were God's way to demonstrate his power through the apostles, and it worked. They didn't necessarily come to the conclusion of who God was and that his son was Christ, but they knew enough to know this was supernatural and they attributed it to God. Verse 7 of chapter 28. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. Paul's become a little bit of a celebrity now on this island after the encounter with the snake. And so it leads him to an audience with Publius. Publius is the leading man of the island. We're told that Greek phrase there for the leading man of the island or the chief man of the island, it means the political leader of the island. And because the name is Greek and the natives are not Greek, this tells us he is a Roman governor appointed to lead the island. It's part of the Roman Empire. So Paul's been introduced to the Roman governor on the island. Now he has somebody he can talk to. And as he learns more about this man, he finds out about his father. His father's actually dying of a disease called the Maltese fever. It's a well-known bacterial, waterborne bacterial disease. Uh, it was common among islanders in that day. It's, it's easily treated now, but it was something of the day. And Paul ministers to this man, heals him, and shows this mercy and this grace to the man in healing him. And as a result of that healing, he now becomes the center of attention among all the crowd of islanders on Malta. And in doing so, Paul now has reached another group of Gentiles on a faraway land, on a faraway island, that arguably he would never have visited under any other circumstances. While he is a prisoner here of the greatest human empire known, 
he is furthering the expansion of an eternal kingdom to the true God. Though the Roman Empire purported to deliver Paul to Caesar, God has delivered Paul to Malta. And just as Jonah was forcibly sent outside Israel to preach to Israel's enemy, Paul now has been pushed by God's hand as a prisoner away from Jerusalem and yet before Rome into this little corner of the Roman Empire so that no one would be untouched by the gospel. Luke seems to be really emphasizing the fact that God knew that even as he was taking Paul to Rome, there was one little out-of-the-way corner that still needed Paul's attention and he wanted Paul to go there and effectively convert what sounds like the entire island. That may not be a definitive truth. It may have been something less than everybody, but it has the sense, the feel of an entire island turned over because of Paul's occurrence, because of Paul showing up on the island. And that's very much in keeping with the story of Jonah. That men had a plan, God had a different plan. God's intent was to work through men with or without their acknowledgement or willingness or understanding. And he does it to his own glory in the process. That's very much a theme of Luke's as you come to the end of this story in understanding how the gospel has moved and will move throughout the world. After three months wintering on Malta, which, by the way, if you've ever been to Malta or seen pictures of it, not a bad place to, to winter. Uh, nice place. The time came to leave the island, and so everyone is gracious. They give uh, Paul and the, and the traveling party plenty of goods for the trip. They send them on their way. They get on another ship. Uh, the ship is also from Alexandria. It wintered in this same port. This is another one of those ships from the fleet that I mentioned that would have traveled back and forth with grain. That's how many of these ships are out there. Another one docked and wintered in Malta. It was decorated with, with twin brothers, one of those statues that hangs off the front of the ship. They were the sons of Zeus and Leda in mythology. They're there because those two sons were the patron gods of mariners or sailors in the day. This is similar. It's in a mythical sense of uh, saints or gods, in this case, who protect us, who watch over us. The irony there is really interesting, isn't it? They've just gone through hell and back on water God bringing through all of it miraculously and promising from the beginning to do so. Now they get on a new ship, and that new ship is trusting in these two idols that are affixed to the front of the ship. It's just an interesting contrast that Luke seems to be emphasizing. The remainder of the trip to Rome was uneventful. Verse 12, after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putioli. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus, we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Apius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So very briefly here, Paul's able to find and he's able to greet believers in at least one church along the way until he finally reaches Rome. And then Paul now is in the capital of the greatest empire the world has ever seen by virtually any measure you would like to use in that regard. The, the empire was 3,000 miles east to west, 2,000 miles north to south. That's how much distance it spanned. It had a population roughly of four and a half million in Paul's day. Half of them were slaves. And Paul has now traveled 2,250 miles from Caesarea to get to this point and gone through all kinds of experiences to get there. And as Paul walks from the port to the city, and that's a bit of a distance, he's met, we're told, by the brethren who come out from the city to meet him at two different points along the way as he approaches the city. They probably learned of Paul's approach from brothers who had met him in the earlier town he stopped in. They may have sent messengers ahead of him 
to Rome and let Rome know, hey, Paul's about to arrive. And so the church in Rome sends out these two greeting parties to encourage him. One meets him at the place called the market and the other meets him at this place called the Three Taverns. These spots are about 33 miles south of Rome. So I want you to think for a moment. Imagine someone walking 33 miles to meet you when you're already going to be meeting them eventually. You're coming their way. But they go out in advance 33 miles to meet you just because they want to encourage you and let you know that we're anticipating he comes into the city and the accommodations there are very good, relatively speaking, all things considered. He's allowed to live by himself rather than in a prison setting, perhaps in the home of the captain of the guard who watched over him, perhaps in a, a home that he secured by himself. Later, we'll be told that he stays in a home that he rented. So it seems as though Paul may have even been able to go and find his own place and then just the guards stay with him. That guard must have learned a lot in the time that he was there with Paul. Now that Paul's settled in the city, and since he's going to have a wait before he sees Caesar, he begins to minister in the way that he always did. Paul just goes back to being who Paul is. He has nothing new to offer in, the, in that regard. Instead of visiting the synagogues this time, though, he has the synagogues visit him because he's tied to a, a guard and can't leave. Verse 17. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. So Paul here says to the Jews, he was forced into becoming a prisoner of Rome because of the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. And yet... He's careful also here to point out that his appeal to Caesar was not an indication that he was choosing Roman affiliation over his Jewish heritage or his Jewish people. He merely did that out of necessity to avoid being turned over to the Jews. Then he goes on in verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I'm wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, we've neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. So the Jewish leaders tell Paul, you're going to have a fair hearing with us. We really haven't heard anything to bias us one way or the other concerning you. Nothing negative. But we have heard some negative reports about this sect. Remember, when they use the term sect, it means they considered the Christian faith to be a division of Judaism a small group or a sect within Judaism. So they have heard negative things about this sect. So they're interested to hear Paul's point of view. Verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. So here's really the fulfillment of Luke's storyline. Paul and the gospel has moved from Jerusalem outward to the corners of the world, all the way now to the farthest reaches of the empire, to the heart of the empire in the city of Rome. That's how we started the whole book of Acts, saying that would be the narrative, moving outward in that fashion. First to the Jew, then the Samaritan, then the Gentile, now to the ultimate destination among Gentiles, the nation's capital, the, the empire's capital. And here's Paul now sitting in Rome, teaching Jewish leaders in the city of Rome, about the Messiah as his starting point, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. 
Specifically, he teaches on the kingdom of God and concerning Jesus. One was teaching concerning God's plan for Israel and the arrival of the kingdom. The other was teaching to the person of the Messiah. Eventually, Paul, we're told, is going to stand before Caesar with a similar message. And then, of course, as always, some believe, some don't. Verse 25, when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. So Paul responds to the leader's unbelief here, quoting Isaiah's own commission. Now, we studied this for those who were here when we did Isaiah. Isaiah was talking to his people of that day. This is when he received his commission from God. And he was told by God that though he would have this message to deliver to Israel in his day, the people of Israel in that day would not understand or receive what Isaiah was given to deliver. What a great way to start your ministry, right? But by withholding their understanding, God ensured that they would be ensnared by their own sin. And that's what happened to the nation of Israel in that day. And then Paul quotes this passage now to remind the leaders in his day that God had in the past sent a truth to Israel only to have it rejected. And now these men were guilty of repeating the same pattern. Paul is not saying that what Isaiah was saying applied to this moment. Isaiah was talking about his own day. But yet it is a parallel to what is happening now in this day. Paul's duty in all of this is clear. I've preached, I've sent, I've obeyed, and now I'm free to go to the Gentiles for you have rejected. So let's look at how Luke brings the story to the end. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. The length of time that Luke mentions here is significant to the, to the way the story ends. Two years was the Roman statute of limitations for witnesses to appear before court against the accused. And if those who were your accusers failed to show within that two-year period, the charges would be dismissed. The fact that Paul sits here for two years and there's no discussion whatsoever of any of the Jewish leaders traveling to Rome and making their accusations against Paul would be evidence, sufficient evidence for us to know that Paul never had to appear before Caesar during this incarceration. He spends two years in house arrest, then was released, no charges having been brought against him from the Jewish leaders. And then if we go look at Paul's epistles, particularly the three that we know were written after this time, and by after I mean after his imprisonment, not while he's here in Rome, but later, that being First and Second Timothy and Titus, we know that Paul undertook a fifth missionary journey, which is not recorded in the book of Acts, because in those letters he talks about being in certain places and seeing certain events which do not occur during the book of Acts, including certain towns that we are never told that he ever visited during any of the travels that Luke records. So that would indicate that there was more journey, one more journey at least, after he left Rome. The church fathers from the second, third century, numerous church fathers, write that Paul was released from this experience in Rome visited more churches, but eventually returned to Rome. Upon his second time in Rome, he was arrested and stood before Nero and was executed, beheaded. 
So in the first case here, he's being released about A.D. 63. In the case of his second incarceration and death, it's about A.D. 68. So there's about five years, give or take, between this moment as the book ends and his death. Luke ends his account here more than likely because he wrote it between 63 and A.D. 68, before there was the death of Paul to report. And some believe that he wrote the gospel while Paul was in Caesarea for two years because he would have had easy access to Jerusalem. It's a relatively short distance away. And as Luke himself writes in his own gospel, it's based on eyewitness accounts. So he would have had to travel to Jerusalem and interview people like Mary and others who helped him support that story and all that he knew in his his account of the gospel. Then after he goes to Rome, he's got two more years sitting by Paul. And it's more than likely that he wrote this account while he's with Paul in Rome. That's how the account ends in this fashion. Somewhere after the writing of this, he's freed. And Luke, we assume, stayed with him because Paul talks about Luke as a a companion in his letters. But he never went back to writing anymore about the events. So that's how the book of Acts concludes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, the grace to bring us through one more study from beginning to end, the full counsel of your word. We ask, Father, that from all the things we've learned along the way, that those things that are most important for us individually, as you have intended, would be the things that remain. They would come to mind in those moments when we we need your direction and when we need courage to act in the proper way. They would form us to be more in the likeness of Christ in our decisions, in our actions, our thoughts, our attitudes. We ask, Father, that it would encourage us as well to become an even uh, deeper, more committed student of Scripture so that that growth process could continue. Thank you, Father, for all the ways in which you made this possible, for the stamina, for the chance to meet so regularly, and for the attention and patience of so many who would attend. We give it to you in thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.